Jesus starts his ministry with calling out his disciples. And he calls them out with the brief phrase, follow me, in the case of Matthew. Or to his other disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And all of a sudden you know that the message is getting turned on its head from convention and human consideration. Because Jesus came during a time, during a fullness of time, when as his ministry began, and we begin to read it in the book of Matthew, it was in the context of both a people, Israel, who were, who were captured by the Roman Empire and had limited rights and who even were misdirected by their own religious leaders. And it was into that context that Jesus steps with the message of the Beatitudes, which we've called the, it's probably a little trite to say be happy attitudes because blessings in the New Testament are messages of joy, messages of deep-rooted satisfaction, of benefits that come from God to us. And they come because we are made in the image and likeness of God, and we're designed to have a relationship with Him, first restored through salvation in Christ, and then enlarged and grown as we follow Him in obedience. Charles Spurgeon was a great uh, minister and uh, sermon maker of the 19th century in London. And Spurgeon loved to uh, give illustrations of life as he saw it. In fact, I like Spurgeon because he's known well for the phrase, if you criticize me for the humor in the pulpit, maybe you should compliment me for what I hold back. And I, I like that because it applies to me on a regular basis. But Spurgeon wrote a number of books on sermons and to his students. And one of them he wrote in a section called The Minister's Fainting Fits. He said the following. Fits of depression come over most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous. The wise, not always ready. The brave, not always courageous. And the joyous, not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron, but surely rust frets even those. And what we're talking about is those sections and periods of life for you when out of the blue, something hits you upside the head. It could be health concerns, it could be family dilemma, it could be the loss of loved ones, it could just be distress and anxiety that seems to settle over us with the best of our efforts to walk in a way that's honorable. And Spurgeon spoke of that and said, you know, even for people of iron, there are times of rust. And Jesus enters into that frailty of the human condition and addresses what it takes to be 
blessed, what it takes to be joyful, what it takes to be honorable before God. We are introduced to our section, and we're going to slow down a little bit in the Beatitudes today because I've suggested that the Beatitudes are an overlay for understanding the whole of the Gospels. In other words, they are the illustration of what it means to both believe in Jesus and to follow him. And in that respect, the Beatitudes become a marker, a plumb bob, a sextant that we can understand the world and the stars and all that has to do with the Christian life. Now in Matthew chapter 5, which is where we're going to be for today, we're introduced to that section by Jesus' own dilemma and battle with the devil himself. In chapter 4, you remember that he went out for 40 days fasting in the desert. And with that fasting, then the devil came to him at the end and tempted him and said, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone. And the devil took him up to a high city and said, I will give you that city. All you need to do is strike down your foot against them and follow me. And Jesus said, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to a test. Not yet dissuaded, Satan came to him a third time in Matthew 4 and said, on a very high mountain, look at all these kingdoms. I'll give them to you. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then a passage that we often overlook. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Even Jesus, being fully God, stepped out of the glory of heaven and fully man had times in his life when he was struggling. It's fair to say that. That's not sacrilegious. He would struggle later on in the garden as the mantle of the cross is laid upon him by his heavenly father. Even here it says that in his weakness, angels came and attended him. So it's not wrong to struggle. In fact, you should expect it in the human experience. But what you have is the ability to have guideposts, to have ways in which God honors the commitments of our life and blesses us, gives us joy, gives us a deep-seated satisfaction. Matthew himself, in Matthew chapter 9, gave us an autobiography of his own calling by Jesus. And he said... As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax gatherers and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you understand the irony of that? Matthew, who is a tax collector, is writing about criticisms of himself as well. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. 
So Jesus' mission was to go to those in need, to go to those who were sick. We learned in the book of James that the majority of the first century church were slaves. They were not the elite of the society. They were ones who were the lesser individuals who, having been redeemed, came and worshipped on Sunday night uh, in the first century. Likewise, uh, when people would go and look for Jesus, and that's the point of that clip, when the clip, the video says, I want to give you a map of where I'm at, they found him with sinners, with prostitutes, with the outcasts of society. So if you were launching a successful mission, uh, you might not choose to gather these people around you to launch the church. But in fact, the very point of grace and salvation is that Jesus takes those of us who are weak and those of us who are lowly and redeems us, not by our ability, but by his grace. So as we go back into the Beatitudes today in Matthew chapter 5, I want to try and overlay and illustrate these Beatitudes with different aspects of Jesus' ministry and see if we can put a test to the truth that these Beatitudes are designed to bring blessing to us in joy in the deepest sense. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit would be equivalent to those who are humble, those who are understanding that they have nothing redemptive to offer of themselves to Jesus. In fact, in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke chapter 18, we find that there is a parable given by Jesus of both a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Luke wrote, to some who are confident in their own righteousness, that's a key to understanding the parable, and looking down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evil doers, adulterers, or even like tax collectors. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Beatitude says that, in fact, the promise and the prediction of Jesus is Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you find yourself feeling inadequate, feeling like what you're facing is something you don't know how to handle, you're in exactly the right spot to look back to God and say, give me the wisdom to handle what I don't know how to do. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, 
where they will be comforted. This was a favorite theme of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus loved to minister to those who were sick, who were diseased, and even to families who suffered death. You remember his relationship was Mary and Martha, and the scripture says he loved Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus who was ill and who died. And as Jesus sought out to go to that family's home, First Mary and then Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, he would not have died, which really evidenced their faith. And in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus said, uh, in fact, it is for the kingdom of heaven that this man sleeps. And he was ridiculed by the crowd for being describing Lazarus as sleeping. And yet he went with Mary and Martha to the grave said, roll away the stone. You remember that? And they said, well, he's been dead four days. I don't think you want to do that. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. And when they did, Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. He said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The Beatitude says, blessed are the, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus used the context of sickness and disease and even death to illustrate that it's in times of the deepest of our grief when we think that we have suffered life blows that we can't overcome. That the promise of Jesus is that joy and comfort becomes our portion. It's the opposite of what we think. But it comes because of the vicissitudes of life, the realities that come with the mornings that come in life. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, a ruler came to Jesus and said, my daughter has died. And Jesus said the same thing. She is not dead, she's asleep. And he was ridiculed for that. And he went to the grave where the daughter had died and raised her from the dead. Promise is... And it's a promise from God, and so you can take it to your life bank that when you're in mourning, when you're in the crucibles of life, and it feels like you're going through a fiery kiln and you can't survive it, the promise is you'll be comforted. You'll get a comfort that is beyond anything you knew or expected. Third, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I love this passage because, again, meekness is not something that's a human quality that's venerated among us. The timid, the weak, the meek, those who recognize they have very little commend themselves for consideration by others. And yet it, it's the meek that Jesus says 
They're the ones that will inherit the earth. When we went through the book of James, you remember we were no sooner out of chapter 1 than we found that the early church played the name game where they took the rich converts of the church and they marched them up front into a place and a seat of honor in the church. And to the poor, they shuffled them to the back of the church meeting. And James, having addressed that, then says in James chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my dear brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? You think, may think that the world is getting ahead of you, that in fact you're missing out on the greatest benefits of life because you've chosen to follow Jesus and to follow his pattern and emphases in terms of the spirit. And this passage says it's just the opposite. You who have in faith trusted God to be your go in front of, to be Jesus who is the one, the advocate for you, you're the ones that are inheriting the earth. You're the ones that are comforted. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's a common kind of an experience that we understand on a regular basis. Hunger and thirst is a human reality. That's our daily portion. I don't know about you, but at a human level, pretty much every day, I'm thinking, what am I going to eat today? Where am I going to eat today? It's a common kind of a human phenomena. This says hunger and thirst for righteousness make in front of you the spiritual hunger, the spiritual desire that says, I won't make it without Jesus at my side. That's the hungering thirst for righteousness. It's illustrated in a passage like Matthew chapter 15 with the Canaanite woman. I love this passage because she was one of the ones that was not a doer and shaker in her society. She was not a Jew. She did not have standing for the kingdom of God. And she came to Jesus and said, I have a daughter who's demon-possessed. And Jesus in Matthew 15 did something odd. He didn't respond to her. He said nothing. So she persisted and she said, Lord, I have a daughter that's demon-possessed. And in fact, we are in need of your care. And then Jesus, in answering the woman, after not answering her at first, said to her, relating to Israel, I was sent only to the sheep of Israel. So to this non-Jew, Jesus said, you're not, front in you're not, you're not first in line here. Because you're not a Jew. I was only sent to the sheep of Israel. Kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say. And then this woman stiffened her shoulders and said back to Jesus and knelt before him, Lord, help me. And he says, it's not right for the children's bread to be tossed to the dogs. So this is kind of strike three on this woman to say, I'm not going to do what you're asking. I'm not going to be one 
that helps you with your daughter. And the woman said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You see how she was persistent, continued to hunger and thirst after the blessings that came from God. And Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. What does that mean? That means at times when you come up against a door or a wall and it seems like God is not interceding for you on the basis of what you need, you keep going back. You keep saying, Lord, you're a Lord of mercy and grace, and I'm trusting you in this situation. And Jesus honors that faith and that persistence that comes to even those who at first weren't entitled. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Jesus often teaches by either contrasts or comparisons, and one of his favorite subjects was children. I love the message about children in the Gospels for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are times when the children would press toward Jesus and he would lay their hands on him, he would lay his hands on them, and the disciples would say, what are you doing? It's really not the mission that we're on for you to be involved with children. And Jesus' answer to the disciples was this, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. The message is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Other times, the disciples were competing among themselves, either they among themselves or Mama Zebedee for the sons John and Jane, John, her two sons, and said, we would like to be great in the kingdom. Or, I'd like one of my sons to sit at your left in the kingdom and one at your right. And Jesus' answer to them again was, Whoever is the least in the kingdom is the greatest. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. When you kneel down, there's, an, there's, there's something that troubled me about a week ago. I was actually in PetSmart taking care of some things for my dog. And as I got out into my car to leave, there was a man kind of crumpled in the parking lot by himself. Um, clearly in distress, and I thought to myself, you know, debating. You haven't got time. What if he asks you for things you, you can't do? I thought, John, knock it off. So I went over there and talked to him for a while, and turns out he had some needs, fairly modest in nature, that could be met. But I think that's the way God wants us to get through life. I think he wants us to open up our eyes to those who have need and to be ones who are merciful so that we receive back mercy. We'll talk about the Good Samaritan in a minute. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One of the greatest examples, or two of the greatest examples about faith in the Bible come from, again, non-Jews. There was a centurion in Matthew chapter 8 who came to him and said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I'll go and heal him. 
To which the centurion said, Lord, I don't deserve to have you even under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this, go and he goes. And another one, come and he comes. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. And said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Lord, I'm not worthy for you to even, that I can expect that you would come to my home. But I'm confident that you can handle the needs of my servant by just saying the word. And Jesus said, that's great faith. You don't have to see, you don't have to see me do something in person. You can believe that I can act on your behalf simply based on your request. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Of all the commendations and of human behavior in our world, peacemaker doesn't get a lot of press. <laughs> uh, I'm even in a career where um, one of my ethical standards is to vigorously represent my clients. And while that has opened to some discussion and debate, the word vigorous is clearly an ethical standard that attorneys have to apply. They have to work at, in the context of a conflict, things that advocate for their client. But here, the blessings that come to us come because we are people that try to resolve differences and conflicts. We are peacemakers. We are ones that are sons of God because of our desire to reduce conflict, to bring resolution in a way that honors God. If these Beatitudes to this point took a bit of our breath away, they haven't finished with us yet. Because the last ones are the ones most difficult. When Jesus said, blessed are the you when people insult you, blessed are those who persecute, are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus goes back to history and he says, you should expect nothing less than that to be honorable and counted for value in the kingdom of God. You carry in the train of the way salvation has come to you today. And he talked about prophets that were persecuted. We know that. We know Isaiah was killed by Manasseh. We know that Zechariah was killed by Joash. We know that Ezekiel was killed and assassinated. We know that Jeremiah and Habakkuk were both stoned to death. Jeremiah in Egypt, Habakkuk in Jerusalem. 
So the train is that we are blessed if we one if ones who that if we are ones who expect that as we are persecuted because of those who went before us, as such the promise is, your reward is in heaven, not on earth to be sure. Well, the disciples listened to that, and you've got to imagine that they hearkened back to that message which was written in the book of Matthew in the early 60s A.D. as follows. We know that 11 out of 12 of the disciples were martyred. We know that Peter was crucified, and he felt himself sufficiently unworthy to Jesus that he asked to be crucified upside down. We know that Andrew was also crucified as he was in a missionary journey in Egypt. We know that James, the son of Zebedee, and Matthew were both crucified. Matthew was staked to the ground and then beheaded. We know that Philip suffered one of the greatest of the martyrdoms of the disciples when he was hung upside down by iron hooks in his ankles until he died. We know, in fact, that all but the disciple John were martyred because of their faith. And can you imagine the words of Jesus echoing back to them? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. One of my favorite stories in terms of this is, the, is John the Baptist. <laughs> Not only because John the Baptist was a man who in his ministry preceding Jesus kicked people over and took names and created a wide swath as he promoted the kingdom of God to those around him. But John, and Spurgeon is right in this, John entered into dark days before his death. And you might recall in Matthew chapter 11, that he was in prison and he contemplated that he would soon be killed. And in the midst of his confusion, John said to his disciples, go back and ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Okay, have you caught the grips of this? If John the Baptist can't get through life without being confused, was I leaning my ladder against the right building or not? Go ask Jesus. Are you the one? Jesus said, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then an operative phrase that he asked John's disciples to take back to John, which we should put as a banner headline that as we drive our car into our garages, should be on the wall in front of our vehicle. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the one who in the midst of his persecution, because of the name of Jesus, says, I'm continuing on. And so the message to John was, 
continue on. And then Jesus went on to say after John's disciples left, no greater man has been born of woman than John. This one who was confused at the end of his life and soon to be beheaded. <clears throat> Where does that leave us in terms of the Beatitudes? I've suggested to you that this is an overlay that's going to help us understand the message of the Gospels. But we live in a interesting world. We live in a world where in the last month a new Supreme Court justice that's been brought onto the court doesn't have the courage or the honesty to say that she can define what a woman is. We live in a world that in the last week our Congress had a witness who had the foolishness to say that men can get pregnant and have abortions. We are in an insane kind of world, and what I've told you two weeks, three weeks ago, was that there's an exponential deterioration right now going on in our country. Where it's all going to end up, I don't know. <clears throat> but I can tell you this, that the, the nature of our work <clears throat> is to be people who are salt and who are light. What does that mean? Matthew 5 says, and here we have the passage in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. For whatever else you can say about salt, it's a preservative. For what else you can say about this analogy, it's a private kind of a determination where you and I say, I'm going to be a person who stands, who, I'm going to be a person who stands for Jesus and for God. I'm going to be a person who, who takes the station that God's given me in life and says, I'm salt. I've been put here for a purpose. Jesus goes on to say, we're not only to be salt, but we're also to be a light. So he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What a wonderful public demonstration of our commitment to Jesus. Not only are we privately salt, we stand firm on the convictions that we have, but we're light. We do things in a way that people can see our good deeds and honor him who is our savior. Three conclusions we come to as we finish up. First of all, God hasn't made any mistakes in your life. Uh, John, I take issue with that. You don't know me. But I think God did make some mistakes. Well, let's see if you can test this out. I'm a 9 or 10-year-old boy being raised in the South by a Christian family, and I watched my father beat my mother regularly and bruise her and send her to the hospital. I'm a boy at 9 and 10 who, when I was struck by my father, cut my head deep enough that when I went to the emergency room and the doctor asked how I cut my head, I lied. And I said I fell down. How can a boy who's raised in an assaultive, abusive home like that, 
How can that be God's purposes? And I'm here to tell you that everything that happens in life has a purpose. And it shapes you and me for the kind of men and women we are to be and reaching out to those who have needs around us. It's no mistake that a good portion of what my legal work is is in the area of family law and dealing with people who deal with struggling with these kinds of circumstances. Didn't know it at the time, but part of God's provision in my life was setting me up to try to be the light to those around us based on the grace of God and based on the experiences of my life. God has not made any mistakes in your life in terms of where you are. And in fact, James tells us, great promise, that in the course of the difficulties and challenges and perseverances of life, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all. You get that? There's not a section of Christendom that says, you guys are losers. And you made such bad decisions that there's no wisdom from God for you. No. No. God gives generously to all without finding fault. What do you mean by that? It means that he picks us up out of the clay. And the mistakes and sins of our life. And he sets our feet in a way that says, now go and do well on my behalf. Without fault, and it will be given to him. Second, I think that we learn a lot from the core instructions of Jesus. There were religious leaders who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? That's the question I face with people around me. That's the terror I see in the eyes of people at funerals who don't know about whether the deceased family members turn for home or not because they don't know about that in their own life. And yet when Jesus was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this inquirer, wishing to further justify his position before Jesus, said, well, Rabbi, who's my neighbor? Ha <laughs> ha. And Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan, the traveler who was wounded, and the priest who couldn't get far enough away from the wounded traveler, and the Levite who ignored him as he went past. But the Samaritan, the non-Jew, coming and seeing the wounded traveler, bound up his wounds, took him to the inn, went back the next day, paid more money for his care, and Jesus turned to this phony religious leader and said, who's, who, who, who's, whose neighbor was he? And the inquirer had to say to the one who gave pity to him. So Jesus has set our feet and our circumstances in life in a way where as we look around and see people who have need, and as we have means to meet those needs, that's the end of the discussion. We live in a bubble in America. And our grocery store shelves right now kind of are full. And the, still get fuel for our cars. And we still have discretionary money. And we still, all those kind of things 
that the majority of the world doesn't have. But in the context of that, the challenge is with the means and resources that God has given us, and it may be somebody you see in a parking lot crumpled down, that you need to stop and slow down and find out what you can do to help. Ones whose need you see and whose needs you meet are ones that Jesus said is loving our neighbor. Finally, if these beatitudes are true, then the ultimate promise is not only are we sons of God, not only are we inheriting heaven itself, not only are we receiving mercy, but we are blessed. We are people that as we walk out of this door, we march to a different drum. We march to one that says, in the difficulties and challenges of life and a childhood I didn't understand and reversals in life that right now I'm going through, I hold my head up and say, God is my joy. God is my life. So Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You have the answer. I have the answer, and it's in Jesus. Unless his disciples didn't understand that, a couple of verses later, Philip said, wait a minute, we haven't seen the Father, you remember? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's our Savior, God's blessings to us this week. Let's pray. Lord, we... We're so grateful to be people that have been grafted in by grace and mercy to be part of your kingdom. And we consider it a supreme privilege to take the circumstances and situations of life that we find ourselves in and the challenges and lay them back at your feet. And we would ask, Lord, that the tasks ahead of us for this week and for the months ahead would be ones that will be found honorable and we keep referring others around us as light to looking at the good deeds which we have and to crediting you who is our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.